I want to start with a question. Have you ever turned down an invitation and then later regretted it? Or missed an opportunity and later kicked yourself like, kind of, what was I thinking? Because in the moment, the cost was just a little bit too high. I think probably most of us in the room can relate to that at least a little bit because life as we know is just full of invitations to take a job in another city, to marry this person, which means not another person, to go here, to go there, to stick it out in your job, to end a relationship, to start one, whatever it is. Invitations kind of bombarding us all the time. And so the experience of receiving an invitation that comes at a pretty high cost and having to make a decision either yes or no is familiar to all of us. And as we all know, this is particularly hard when those decisions have the potential to shape the trajectory, the course, the direction of your life for decades to come. All that being said, I want to read two passages that contain invitations from Jesus. The first one, it's in Mark 8, verse 34. It's kind of this general invitation that I think applies to each and every one of us in the room. Jesus says this, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And then the second invitation is just a couple of chapters on in Mark's Gospel, in Mark 10, verse 21. It's a very specific invitation to a wealthy young man. He, he, he comes to Jesus wanting to, to find, uh, I guess, the meaning of life. And this is what Jesus says to him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Now, I'm going to re return to those two imitations right at the very end, where we're not going to do what we normally do and kind of uh, verse by verse, word by word, syllable by syllable, kind of work through the intricate details uh, of those verses. We're, we're not going to do that. I'm going to kind of uh, take a step back from them and explore a bit of the ideas or, or concepts uh, around those imitations. But we're going to return more specifically to them at the very end. But for now, uh, I want you to notice that what those two imitations have in common is that, that they're not so much imitations to just kind of change or adapt or rearrange the mental furniture in our minds and hopefully go to heaven when we die and in the meantime try our very hardest to be nice to the people around us and find happiness in our lives. Not imitations to that which incidentally is actually what a lot of people think it means to be a Christian but it's not that. Instead both of these are imitations very simply to follow Jesus. If you like they're an invitation to discipleship uh, and it's pretty clear that to accept the invitation is going to involve some kind of personal cost. It's going to cost us something. Now, the word disciple, I think it's one of those words that 
uh, means different things to different people. By discipleship, some people, for example, kind of think it's talking about leadership development, like what Jesus did uh, with the 12. So the idea is, hey, uh, Jesus spent all this time with 12 people, raising them up, and that was his kind of key method of changing the world. And so uh, every leader who's worth their salt should have just a, a small group of people that they hang out with, spend time with, raising them up intentionally to be world changers. Uh, and I'm all for that. Now, I think it's a great idea. But the problem is that Jesus uh, had way more disciples than the 12. He had hundreds, uh, if not thousands, of disciples who were kind of traipsed around following him all around Galilee. Other people think of discipleship uh, more as one-to-one mentorship. Uh, the idea here is that you kind of sit with an older wiser, more mature follower of Jesus, and you sit down and study the Bible together or work through a book together or whatever. And again, that is great. But in reality, the Gospels really show Jesus alone one-to-one with anybody. Now, of course, I'm sure he did spend time one-to-one with people, and there's the story of the woman, the Samaritan woman by the well, and don't want to argue from silence here, but in the pages of the Gospels, Jesus is regularly and frequently and often around crowds of people. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm all for those two things. I'm all for leadership development. Uh, I'm, I'm up for mentorship. But the problem with calling those things discipleship uh, is in both those examples, disciple is a verb. Uh, it's either something you do to somebody else or that somebody else does to you. But in the New Testament, and bear with me here, if you're not a linguist or you don't know your verbs from your adjectives to your nouns, I I will give you an example to explain what I'm talking about here. But some people, I'm talking your language, so I'm just going to persist with this. In the New Testament, uh, discipleship is not a verb. Discipleship is not something you do or have done to you. It's a noun. It's actually somebody that you are. So, for example... If later on after the meeting you sidle up to me and say, uh, really interesting talk, Jonathan, uh, just want to clarify, uh, who are you discipling at the moment? Uh, I'd say that that's the equivalent of asking me who I am Christianing. Or, or if you ask me on the back of this talk to disciple you, it's the equivalent of asking me to Christian you. You see what I mean? You, you can't Christian someone. You either are or you aren't a Christian. And in the same way, I would humbly suggest you either are or you aren't a disciple of Jesus. So what exactly is a disciple? Well, because we don't really use that word outside of church circles, I think it's easy for us to import a meaning into being a disciple that isn't particularly accurate. That being said, I think there are a few words out there that do help provide just a little bit more of an understanding of what it means to be a disciple. The word student is one of those words. To be a disciple of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus, is effectively to become one of his students, learning from him how to live in a way that honors God. You know, I I think each and every one of us would seriously benefit from recapturing at least a little bit of that idea of Jesus as a rabbi or a teacher. Uh, He he was, of course, a lot more than that, but he certainly wasn't less than that. 
You see, I think we can have this tendency, and it comes through in our worship, and again, don't hear me wrong, I'm all for this, but I think we can have this tendency to think of Jesus primarily as our Saviour. And just to underline, He is our Saviour. He's a wonderful Saviour, and he's, uh, we worship Him because He is our Saviour. So I believe in that, but I think the danger is we don't necessarily think of Him as all that clever, And it's incredibly hard, isn't it, entrusting your whole life to somebody that you don't think is the most brilliant human being who ever lived. And so I think we'd do well to recapture this idea that Jesus is just phenomenally, infinitely, exceptionally, wonderfully, amazingly brilliant. He's got the most astonishing mind. His understanding is unrivaled. His insights are always right and accurate and correct and the best. And as such, his words are 100% authoritative for our lives in the here and now. And so I think that the word student is helpful. But the danger is that we can then import all the kind of Western education system into that word and think of Jesus a bit like our teacher at school or a professor, like uh, I read his book or listened to his podcast or that one lesson or that one lecture uh, was really interesting and reasonably insightful. Uh, And I kind of see him a couple of times every week. And I suggest that is probably not the best way to think of being a disciple. Another word that could be used for disciple is the word practitioner. Uh, Someone who not only hears Jesus' teaching, not only agrees with the teaching, but actually goes away and does something about it, goes away and puts it into practice, which is certainly a positive way to think about it. But perhaps the most accurate word that we have in the English language to capture the true meaning of what it is to be a disciple is the word apprentice. To follow Jesus is effectively to apprentice under him into kingdom living. Now, back in Jesus' day, if you're a disciple or an apprentice of a rabbi, you had three very simple goals in life. Goal number one, to be with your rabbi. Goal number two, to become like your rabbi. And goal number three, to do what your rabbi did. And I think if we try and apply that to our apprenticeship to Jesus... I would suggest it gives us a very clear vision of what it means in practice, day in, day out, to follow him. To accept Jesus' invitation to be his follower, to be his disciple, to be his apprentice, is to organize your whole life around those three same basic goals. And more than anything else, that's what I want to invite you to prioritize this year, not just this year, probably every year that follows as well. So here we go. Let me just unpack those three goals and then we're done. Goal one is to be with Jesus. If you want a vision for Church Central South this year and every subsequent year, I think we'll do well to focus on being with Jesus, get a bigger vision for being with Jesus. This is the first, I'd argue, the most important goal. Just to Slow down from the hurry and the noise, the busyness of life in the modern world. 
to slow right down to the pace of Jesus. Uh, themes coming through in our worship earlier. Let's just slow down a bit and set our mind on him and his compassionate goodness towards us. Which, let's be honest, is a battle, isn't it? It's a battle because we live in a world of what Microsoft researcher Linda Stone called continuous partial attention. Like even now, you're, you're, you're semi-listening to me and you look like you're taking notes on your phone perhaps, but you're actually kind of checking the cricket score or you're, you're, you're thinking, what time's he going to finish and when am I going to have my lunch? And uh, what, what you, I mentioned uh, kind of being a student, you're thinking, oh, I've got to go to school tomorrow. And uh, the, uh, our attention is constantly being pulled in all kinds of different directions. We're constantly being bombarded by these kind of huge corporations out there who kind of dupe us into thinking that uh, we're the customer and we're in control, but in reality we're the product and we're being controlled. It's like they do everything they can to distract us and addict us, uh, effectively to kind of steal our attention away from the important things in life, to steal our attention away from Jesus and the goodness of time with Him. And the call of Jesus is to live not in continuous partial attention, but instead in what the author A.W. Tozer called constant conscious communion. I love that. Constant conscious communion. To move from a life of distraction and noise and on our phones all the time. And I, I, I trust those who are on their phones right now. Despite my little barbed comment earlier, uh, I can see you are taking notes and it is legitimate. So please don't put them away if you're using them for good. Reclaim technology and use them for good. But they can also be a distraction. And I, I think we need to move from a life of distraction and noise. Our gadgets all the time to life of what Jesus called abiding. Now, I sound great in theory, and well, I'm paid to do this stuff, and obviously I don't understand your life and what's the possibilities open to you, but this, this guy Tozer said this. He, he went on to say, as we set the heart's attention on Jesus, a habit of soul is forming which will become, after a while, a spiritual reflex requiring no more conscious effort on our part. Meaning that, uh, at first, this, this whole idea will feel pretty clumsy and a little bit awkward and a bit of a pain in the neck, if truth be told. It will feel way more like discipline long before it feels like delight but eventually, through what scientists call neural plasticity, or what the Apostle Paul simply calls the renewal of the mind, you will, over time, rewire the way your brain works and move more and more and more and more to live in awareness and connection to God. So that throughout each and every day, your mind naturally wanders towards Jesus rather than away from Jesus. That first thought when you wake up in the morning is of Jesus. When you're stopped at the traffic lights, your mind wanders to thoughts about him. When you're between lectures or meetings, your mind automatically goes back to the reality of Jesus. And as you grow in this, your mind stays longer and longer on the reality of Jesus through all the noise and all the distraction, the pain 
and the suffering and the disappointment and the stress of everyday life. But to quote a guy called Henri Nouwen, a spiritual life that I'm describing without discipline is impossible. He goes on to say, discipline is the other side of discipleship. The practice of a spiritual discipline makes us more sensitive to the small, gentle voice of God. So here's the question. This year, do you want to spend more time with Jesus? Simple question. I'm guessing in this context, we kind of know what the right answer is. But be honest, for yourself, this year, all other things being equal, would you like to spend more time with Jesus? If you would, what disciplines can you put in place to enable you to actually do this? Now, just to be clear, spiritual disciplines are not about making you more precious to God. It's not so you're more worthy that when we come here on a Sunday, you feel, well, now I'm accepted because I've prayed this amount in the week or I've done this Bible plan and, and so now I'm in. It's not about making you more precious to God. You're already invited, you're already welcome, you're already accepted, you're already loved as much as it's possible to be loved by an infinite God. It's not about that. It's more about making God more precious to you. And if that's a priority for you, kind of makes sense to reflect on what small discipline you could start doing right now and then keep focusing on it until it becomes a reflex, until it becomes a habit, until it comes naturally to you. Now, just to try and make this as practical as I can, some of the best advice that I was given uh, when I was slightly younger than I am now to try and kind of help me have regular, consistent devotional times was uh, simply to start with five minutes a day but commit to doing it every day, just to pray and read the Bible for five minutes every day. And once you've mastered that, and they say it takes somewhere between 21 and 75 days to form a habit, so uh, you could be a lucky one, it might take you just three weeks, uh, it might be kind of closer to two or three months, but if you do it kind of consistently every day, you will have developed a habit. And once you've developed a habit, then increase the time, maybe 10 minutes every day until that becomes a habit, and then 15 minutes, and so on. Uh, and if, again, you feel that's just been completely unrealistic, you wouldn't know what to do in five minutes, I mean, even one minute would be uh, a challenge. If, if you feel like you could do it taking a step back and simply learning how to pray, then why not commit to our prayer meetings on the second and fourth Sunday evenings of the month from 6.30 to 8 p.m., at Central House. Through this term, as Dawn uh, was saying earlier, uh, we are continuing to, to shape our prayer meetings around the theme of teaching us to pray. And so, if you want to grow in prayer, it's kind of there on a plate for you. We'll, we'll equip you. We'll, we'll, we'll give some training on how to pray, and then we'll put it into practice with some others so you can develop some of these practices. And if you're sitting there feeling rather smug right now, like, I don't need help, to know how to pray. I mean, how patronizing. If you feel like you've got it cracked and you don't need any help, well, you please come to the prayer meetings as well and pass on what you've learned to others who benefit from hearing your wisdom. So the prayer meetings are for everyone. Also, I want to encourage you uh, to come to something that we call the river. 
How many people in the room have been to uh, the, one of the river evenings? A, a few of you. Uh, we put them on just twice a term. And the next one is actually uh, Sunday next week, uh, 7.30 to 9.30 again at Central House. If your relationship with Jesus feels at times a bit like a stagnant pond, it's, it's not particularly fresh and it's not really going anywhere, there's nothing like getting with others who can help carry you along uh, deeper in your enjoyment uh, of Jesus. Uh, I tell you, those river evenings... Um, have the potential to do in two hours what it would normally take several years to accomplish in terms of warming your heart to Jesus, in terms of engaging with him with no pressure and no distraction around, uh, with others who can maybe kind of take you a bit deeper and you might be able to help others as well. Um, It's just a great opportunity. I'd love for all of you to benefit from it. So that's the first goal to be with Jesus. Got that one? Let's move on to the second one. Second one is to become like Jesus, not just to be with him, but to become like him. You know, I think there's been a real shift in our culture over the last 50 years or so from a focus on character to a focus on personality. It's like our culture, as it's become more and more diverse, not just ethnically, Uh, which is a good thing, by the way. We celebrate uh, ethnic diversity, but it's not just diverse ethnically, also ethically with the whole rise of secularism. Uh, I think because of this increase in diversity in our society, it's becoming harder and harder to agree together on a vision for the kind of person that we want to grow and mature into, other than things like tolerance, which if you think about it, isn't really a virtue so much as just a basic way to get along in a pluralistic culture. And so really the limit of people's ambition for themselves is reduced down to how they appear, how they look, how popular they are, their status, their wealth, their position, things like that. The interesting thing is, despite all of that, if you ever go to a funeral they rarely, if ever, say things like, she had wonderful teeth, or so many friends on Facebook, or 25,000 pounds in her saving account. Now, we don't say that kind of stuff. If we praise them, what do we focus on? Character. I think deep down, all of us still know that on our deathbed, If we didn't become a good person, we didn't really live a good life. It's like at some level, each of us deep down aches for goodness. I mean, I might have misread the room, but I'm guessing no one here, kind of your ambition or your vision for life is to become a really bad person. Uh, Anyone here in that category? too frightened to admit it. We don't think those kind of things. This year, I want to become worse than I was last year. We don't have those kind of dreams for ourselves. No, we want to be good. We want to be better. The problem is we just don't know how. And more than anyone else in all of human history, Jesus shows us the way. And to the degree that we apprentice under Jesus, which sadly is very different from the degree to which people merely identify as a Christian, no, to the degree that we actively, intentionally follow Jesus, 
we begin over time to experience a transformation in our character. Now, of course, uh, all of us, we start from different places. We all have different wounds from the past that need to be healed. But regardless of our background, as we grow as followers of Jesus, we do inevitably, over time, grow to become more like Him. The problem is, the culture that we live in is constantly pulling us very strongly in a different direction. We're we're constantly, aren't we, being bombarded with a different narrative through, uh, again, our phone, social media, our education, our work, the music we listen to, the TV we watch, and our friendships. I mean, just take the group of people that you hang out with the most on any given week. The chances are that over time, you are subtly being shaped by those relationships to the point that you dress like, you think like, you vote like, you act like, you eat like, you exercise like, and you talk like them. It's like we face this daily, hourly, minute-by-minute assault of an alternative story that if we allow it to infiltrate our thoughts and begin to live out of it, it will twist us more and more out of the image of Jesus. So, because we don't start from a neutral place, we do need to be highly intentional about this. If we want to grow to become more like Jesus, then we need to mitigate against all of that other stuff. Again, just to try and make this as practical as possible. First things first, if we're going to stand any chance whatsoever of living out of God's story, surely we need to prioritize feeding ourselves with the truths of God's Word, which incidentally is the only way we're ever going to truly flourish and thrive in life. We need to hold up what God says about our identity, sexuality, relationships, money, work, suffering, pain, and build our lives on the foundation of what God says, run on the wisdom of the world around us. We also need to develop practices, habits that train us to to live counterculturally. Things like, again, this came up in our worship earlier, Sabbath rest. Things like fasting, breaking bread together in our homes, giving generously, living in community with others who pull us and push us towards Jesus, not away from Jesus. Now look, there's loads more that can be said about all of this, uh, and we're going to come back and unpack a lot of this actually in our next two preaching series. Starting next Sunday, uh, we're going to be spending five weeks looking at what it really means to belong in God's story, laying a, a bit of a foundation each week of God's big plan and God's big purpose for the world and how we can get to play a part in that. And then uh, after that, we're going to spend six months working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Really practical, challenging, life-changing instruction from the mouth of Jesus himself. So that's where we're heading. But for now, I simply want us to recognize that we are being formed into the image of somebody or something, whether that's Jesus or your celebrity of choice, or perish the thought, your parents, or the ideals of our society, this isn't just a Christian thing, it's actually a human thing. So the question is not, are you a disciple? 
It's more a case of who or what are you a disciple of? Who or what are you being formed into? If you were to chart the trajectory of your life, 10, 20, 30 years from now, who do you see on the horizon? Notice, it's not a question of who do you want to become? That's a separate question, and it's an important question, but I think it's more telling to dwell on who you are currently becoming. What's this relationship turning me into? What's this show on Netflix doing to the way I think? What's this job, this course, this activity, this you fill in the blank forming me into? Is it changing me more into the image of Jesus or into someone or something else? Because to be human is to change. Like, it's impossible to just stay the same. If we were to convene this exact same room of people together in 12 months' time, no one would be exactly the same as they are right now. We're all on a trajectory or a series of trajectories. We're we're all heading more one way or another. Staying the same isn't an option. We're, We're currently becoming more or less of what we currently are, more free or less free, more full of joy or less so, more loving or less loving. Just by way on the side, I think that's one of the reasons why most of the older people you meet are either the best people you know or the worst people you know. They're either so full of compassion, kindness, joy, faith, peace, or they're cruel, selfish, bitter, hurt, miserable, because life didn't go the way they wanted. And I think the best way to mitigate against ending up cruel and bitter and miserable is to follow Jesus, to make his end goal your chief aim, to follow his way of life, to, to grow year in, year out, to become more like him. So just to recap, first goal, be with Jesus. Second goal, become like Jesus. And then the third goal of the three is to simply do what Jesus did. Or perhaps a better way of putting it is to do what Jesus would do if he were you. As I reflect on this, I think actually all of this is interconnected. I'm more and more convinced that being with Jesus and becoming more like him It's really closely linked to obedience or submission or surrender to God. Remember, Jesus famously said, I always do what pleases the Father. Imagine if you could say that. How was your week? Pretty tough, but in every moment, I always did what pleases the Father. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus always seemed to have this awareness of the presence of the Father with him. And that he was also a man of obedience. I always do what pleases the Father. God, what would please you in this situation? Is there something you're doing in this person that you want me to encourage 
right now? Is there a way I can partner with you in challenging this wrong way of thinking? Do you want me to go here or go there? How do I spend this money that I have available right now? Who do you want me to pray for today? Now look, this may be a million miles from how you think right now. I might be describing a person that is not you at this moment. But I think a big part of learning how to live with God is learning over time how to please Him. It's learning to live with the attitude of not my will, but your will be done. And if that just sounds a bit weird to you, or a bit extreme, or ever so slightly over the top, you've got to remember that God's intention towards us is always and everywhere one of a loving Father who is all-wise and always good. And so as we give ourselves to this, as we give ourselves to pleasing Him, we're inevitably going to discover more and more pleasure. I'll tell you, there is nowhere more joyful to be than right at the center of God's will for us. It's like abiding and obedience grow together or they don't really grow at all. So to follow Jesus, pretty simple, it's to be with him, it's to be like him, it's to do what he did. But over the years, I've been around the church for a little while now, I think the call to follow Jesus has kind of just got narrowed down, reduced down to just, well, come to church on a Sunday, which is good, by the way. I'm not going to say, well, this year, Church Central South was saying, don't bother coming anymore. Uh, I'm not, not watering that down, but it, it often just gets limited to that. You see, if you follow that as your template for life, I don't think it's good enough because 30 years down the line, most people don't feel a whole lot more like Jesus. They just feel 30 years older. That's because transformation into likeness of Jesus doesn't just happen. None of us become more like Jesus by accident. It's not something we stumble into. None of us wake up one morning and suddenly find ourselves not thinking lustful thoughts anymore. Like, how did that happen? None of us listen to a sermon on not worrying and automatically live a life free from all anxiety, worry, and stress from that point on. Nobody becomes that kind of a person just by attending a meeting like this once a week. There's a story that Dietrich Bonhoeffer tells in his book, Life Together. Back in the 1930s, Bonhoeffer grew so disillusioned with the German church supporting the Nazi regime, he started a small countercultural community to model what it truly means to follow Jesus, to be one of his disciples, one of his apprentices. His friends, they were ever so slightly skeptical about what he was doing, uh, and they visited him to try and bring him to his senses and talk him out of this kind of crazy project he had going on. And so, Bonhoeffer uh, took them up a nearby hill where they could look down and see a Nazi training camp in the distance in the valley below. And he said to them, this, pointing at his community, this must be stronger than that, pointing at the Nazi war machine. I suggest in the same way, this 
the way that we follow Jesus must be stronger than that, the city that we live in, constant tug of social media, the relationships that we're in, the, the habits we practice, the, the culture in our school, on our campus, and our place of work. But the hard truth is that although this right here is often pretty good, this all by itself is not stronger than that. Just a, a couple of hours here once a week is not stronger than the other 166 out there, which incidentally is one of the reasons why we've made the call to relaunch our small groups after Easter. Uh, again, as Dawn explained, focusing more on forming longer-term communities, different neighborhoods uh, around the cities that uh, intentionally go deeper relationally. Because quite frankly, the only kind of apprenticeship to Jesus that's going to survive our city is one that is grounded in robust, vulnerable, authentic, committed community over the long haul. To borrow the title from Bonhoeffer's book, we are convinced that really the only way to make it is through life together. I mean, let's be honest, the pressures we are under are huge, aren't they? I think all of us would have to admit we cannot do it alone, and we were never meant to. God's design is for us to have a community of fellow apprentices around us to encourage and support, to correct, to pray, to celebrate, and to weep with us. Now, I'm not going to get into all the practical details of how these new groups are going to work right now. Maybe that's the only reason you're here, to find out more. Well, you'll have to come back next week or the week after or sometime in the future. I'm not going to go into all the practical detail now because that will distract you from the main message I want you to hear. All I want to say, though, is that our expectation is that uh, actually everyone who's a part of Church Central South will be able to find a place in one of those community groups, uh, and we're together committed to helping you find the right one to belong to. I should also just mention, we, we said we're going to communicate some news, so here's a bit of news for you. One of those groups is going to be focusing uh, more on the east uh, of our city, uh, and it won't just be uh, kind of a community group that uh, meets uh, during the week, it will be that, but uh, it's also going to be a brand new site of Church Central South. Uh, the plan is uh, in September uh, for our community kind of gathering uh, more in the east of the city, reaching out that way uh, to be meeting on a Sunday uh, in some capacity, probably a central house, uh, putting that to good use as well. So that will be coming up uh, later in the year. Now, all that being said, the simple invitation from Jesus that I don't want you to miss in the midst of all of that, simple invitation from Jesus to you today is come follow me. Come follow me. He's inviting you to reorient your whole life around those three simple goals of being with Jesus, becoming more like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. Question is, how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond? Returning, as I said I would, to those two passages that we read right at the start. If you remember, uh, one of them was, was this general invitation to all of us 
to take up our cross, to die to living our own way, and surrender everything to follow Jesus. The other one was this very specific invitation to this God-loving, moral young man who still knew he was missing out on something. And so he comes to Jesus asking a genuine question about how he could find true life. And in the passage it says, he went away sad. He turned down the invitation because the cost was too high. I'm pleading with you, please do not let that be your story. Please do not reject this invitation. In the words of Jesus, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, Jesus says, and for the sake of the good news, then you will save it. You know, one of the greatest problems in the Western church right now, I believe, is we've, we've lost the expectation that to give up everything for Christ is what the normal Christian life should look like. We've somehow narrowed it down to giving up chocolate for Lent, whereas Jesus calls us to give up everything for the rest of your life which is probably a slightly bigger deal. I think of friends right now who have counted the cost and moved away from friends, family, career, sold everything to serve God overseas, where it's lonely and unbelievably difficult on a daily basis, often pretty dull and mundane. It can feel at times as though you've been forgotten by everyone back home. I think of plenty of others who have actually done the opposite. They've turned down exciting opportunities to move away because they know God wants them here right now. I think of friends who years ago agreed the amount of money they were going to live off and decided to give away everything they earn above that figure. They're still doing it. Some years they give more than they keep for themselves. I think of friends who have counted the cost and resolved to be single their whole life because they're same-sex attracted and they've wanted to submit to the teaching of Jesus that sex is for marriage and marriage is between a man and a woman. I tell you, these are real heroes of the faith. But none of this makes any sense whatsoever unless following Jesus, being with him, Becoming more like him, doing what he did, is altogether better than that. And I'm here today to assure you that it is. But please, don't just take my word for it. Won't you accept Jesus' invitation and test it out for yourself? Right here, right now, Jesus is calling each and every one of us to simply follow him. Now, the specifics of that call... They change from person to person. But it's always and everywhere at some level a call to a deeper surrender to Him. That's a good question for you to reflect on as we close, maybe for the rest of this day or through this next week. A good question to reflect on is what's the next step of surrender in your journey into the image of Jesus 
and his life, his goodness, his joy, and his peace. What are some of the things you perhaps need to give up or give away or walk away from? What are some of the disciplines that you need to more intentionally start building into your life? Let's pray.